Welcome to Managing Marketing. Today I'm back in New York City at Sparks and Honey on Madison and I'm sitting down with Jared Alessandroni, who is the CTO, I guess, Chief Technical Officer at Sparks and Honey. Welcome, Jared. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here and it's such a pleasure to be on Madison Avenue. Isn't that such a fun way to talk, to have this kind of podcast, to really talk about this kind of thing? It's the place to be. A very traditional uh, place for advertising. <laughs> I guess what we we're going to talk about today is almost if not the future of advertising, where advertising and communications and marketing is mm-hmm. today. But before we get there, first of all, uh, I should have actually addressed you as uh, doctor. Fair enough. Uh, because fair enough. you have a PhD in what Cognitive was your... neuroscience. So I, I went to Columbia. I went to, well, first of all, my undergraduate, I went to school in New Hampshire. Um, I wanted to be a teacher, you know. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to start a school. And I did, by the way. Um, and I was really excited about it. So then I got into academic um, neuroscience. So uh, academia was something that I didn't know enough about. I, so a lot of my friends who were in this space, uh, they they had parents or cousins or uncles who were academics. I had the unique situation of having almost nobody in my family who was an academic. So I didn't realize what it meant to mm. go into that universe. And once I got into it, I realized I did not like it at all. It's a very different world, <laughs> it isn't is. it? It is. You know, the motivations are different. Totally you know? different. And the way of thinking is... First of all, the, the obsession with publishing changes the way that you think about thought, right? If you, if you think about why you, th- why you care about something, your motivation can either be that you care about it because you love the output, the thing it's going to become, or you care about it because you think you should care about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that academia is in many ways about people sort of justifying the thing they're excited about rather than saying, oh, I'm excited about this new thing now. Goodbye this. <laughs> yeah, that's right, because <laughs> that's the longer you're in academia, the more you end up in a channel of particular mm-hmm. specialty, don't exactly. you? And that's one of the things when I moved from medical research into advertising, so I, I said to the people, I said, why? And I said, well, because I was heading down a career which would be a mile deep, mm. but only an inch wide. <laughs> And I've ended up in an area where it's a mile wide and an inch deep, <laughs> which, which is infinitely more possibility. For sure. Well, I, I think it's really interesting. It's about passion, right? Like I loved for a while, I loved the idea. So I was into um, prefrontal cortical development and the way that um, we develop our cognitive abilities, particularly around language and speech. Um, I was interested in uh, speech recognition centers and sort of how those things change over time. So that, I was very passionate about it. And what we've done, what we had done, this is 2000, 2003, uh, we'd sort of really untapped the fMRI, which is a tool that could allow you to stand up and talk while it's scanning your brain. It's an amazing time to be in cognitive mm. neuroscience. Then I started looking at my peers. I started looking at the people who were studying this stuff. And I realized, wait a minute, you guys have only studied the same thing for five years, for 10 years. Aren't you, are you bored? Are you, I mean, I get it. You'll never, you're not going to uncover all the uh, mysteries of the human mind ever, at least mm. not in our, in our lifetimes, I don't think. I'd like to be wrong on that, by the way. Don't, don't, don't hold me to it. But on the other hand, 
don't you personally kind of wonder about what's happening in you know automotive industry <laughs> what happens when you're excited about the way that the iPhones are going to be sold in 10 years like these are just hugely different categories don't you get bored so as soon as I got out as soon as I finished that I went to the Bronx I founded my charter school which is a really wonderful place if you ever get bored um, and I decided to go into technology <laughs> Because it's interesting, isn't it, how innovation and creativity actually mm. happens across disciplines, across categories, across industries. Are you just setting me up? That's actually the very basis of what Sparks and Honey does, well, which is we look at culture on the horizontal. And and I think that's important because, you know, clients end up in particular categories. I know mm. uh, marketers that have only ever been in the automotive category <laughs> yes. and that they start to believe that there's a particular way of marketing automotives. Mm. They're in pharma and they think that <laughs> pharma is the only way. They often don't see that the opportunity, the insight is to not think about best practice in your category, but to look across categories to see what's happening elsewhere, isn't it? Well, you got me excited because you say automotive um, uh, advertising, man, and I think of, you know, think small, mm. right? Like I think of how what you do, and this is, you know, just to give you a very abstract version of this, um, when I was a kid, I used to move my bedroom around a lot. You know, like my bed goes here now, my, my, um, you know, my desk goes here. What happens is that we get a sameness bias where we like something to be the same for a while and then we hate it to be the same. And we have these ebbs and flows. We have the way of thinking where we're looking, whether it's a set of advertisements or whether it's the way our house looks or whether it's just anything in our lives that we're kind of used to. We get to a point where we absolutely need it to change. And different people reach that point at different times. Yeah. But the culture reaches it at some point. And whenever it does, every single person who was in advertising who was thinking the same way, every person who had the best practices for pharma, every person who'd been sort of in that, they become obsolete in a day. And that is sort of the evolution. That's why creativity, that's why this passion has to be something dynamic. It's quite a paradox, though, isn't it? Because on one side, I, I agree with you, we do, we're attracted to the new mm. because we want change. But then there's other change that we often resist, you mm. know, and that's fundamental change. Yeah. You know, we like, it's almost the superficial change, but when we <laughs> want fundamental change, cultural change that's happening, and the older we get, the more resistant we get to that change for many people. Well, you're talking about plasticity, and I think yeah. that's a really exciting place to talk. We have our interns now, you know, so we at Sparks and Honey, we have a few interns and they're Gen Z, or they, they want to be called founders now. So there are these young kids here, and it blows your mind to just see how young they are, and also just how consciously, and that, that reminds you of that age, consciously anti-whatever the old thing was, they are. And I think that that plasticity, that ability to be really elastic, generally so in cognition, for example, one of the things we're really interested in is that moment where your language becomes locked, right? So you can take a nine-year-old or 10-year-old and you can actually have them sound like a native speaker in almost any language. Mm -hmm. You turn 14, you're locked up, right? In the same way, I think that we reach an age and I don't want to give a number, sir. No, and it will vary from person <laughs> oh, of to person. Oh, and, and, you know, their, their attitude or, you Absolutely. know, and, and people make conscious decisions. I like that you said that avoid, conscious decision. To avoid yes. locking themselves. I remember it happened to me in that uh, <laughs> someone asked me for some recommendations on music and I put some music ideas and they said, oh, these are so <laughs> 90s. And I suddenly realised I'd stopped listening to new music. Yes. So they, I said to them, okay, what should I be listening to? And they gave me a list of about, you know, 50 different right. uh, tracks. Well, and it, it completely opened up 
my mind to the fact that, yes, there's new and different and interesting. Right. But you know what's interesting about that is what your brain had to do to start liking that music, right? What's really interesting is the amount of mental energy. So there's this rule. You have to tell, you have to hear a poem three times. You have to hear a song three times, right, before you can really appreciate it, right? Well, for us, what's really interesting is that as we get older, it takes more mental energy, more cognitive dissonance, more cognitive challenge in our brains um, to listen to that and not just turn it off. Right. And the same with the poems, the same with the science, the same with even TV shows. It is actually harder. One of the sort of really interesting things on Netflix is the resurgence of shows like The Office, because people have this lack. It takes a lot less energy to watch a show like that, because somewhere in our brains, we got comfortable with that cadence of a show in the same way that we got cadence of that music. It's something we're comfortable with. We don't have to work at it. And in the same way, we have to look at how our marketing is sort of gotten comfortable and we have to actually take a lot of energy to push out of it. Because this isn't something that's just particular to human beings. I know there's studies in lots of mammals, Mm -hmm. and it's the same thing, that as we get older, we're inclined to filter out more. And you're saying it's because of the energy it takes to constantly... And there's an interesting way to measure it, actually. So one of the things you can do is, you can, and again, I know I'm going to say fMRI a million times, and you'll have to yell at me, but essentially, if we look at fMRI of an 8-year-old listening to music, and we look at one of a 25-year-old listening to music that's brand new to them, what you're going to be looking for is patterns. So if you look at, have you ever heard that really cool effect of um, where they take the actual sound of a drum of the eardrum when music's coming in? What we find is that music that's consonant um, sort of sounds like very uh, flat. It sounds like mm-hmm. it's about the same. Yep. And that music that's very dissonant, music that has sort of a lot of anti-patterns in it, uh, actually makes these very rumbly, sort of non-patterned, Yep. It's really neat. There's a great podcast. Um, I want to say Radiolab has a great podcast on the way that sound attaches to our ears, right? Well, when that reaches us, what we do is we develop schema for understanding it at a very micro level. We can actually, our brain is smart enough to take those rumbling patterns and turn them into larger patterns. Mm-hmm. And what happens is the work, that same plasticity that allows us to learn a new language when we're eight is much harder to achieve when we're much older. And so what happens is those rumbles when we're much older are actually grating at us. Jared, I, I, have, to, I have to thank you because you've just explained why I struggle with learning uh, Mandarin because my wife go. speaks Mandarin. So I'm going to use that excuse. You're going to say, it's, 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 it's rumbling. This, it's this brain of mine. You know, it's just got to the point that it can't it. learn anything. But one of the other things is that we hear especially mm. that you know, with the volume of information, the yes. volume of data that's coming in all the time, structured and unstructured data, that people filter too much. And does this mean that as potentially people get older, mm-hmm. they're filtering more and actually not considering all of the possibilities? I like the word filter there because the most dangerous thing is the filter that you make without knowing you're filtering it. Mm-hmm. Just like if you were in a store yesterday, and somebody said, hey, what music did you listen to yesterday? Would you be able to identify this new song that you heard that you'd only heard in the background of a store? Because you've consciously filtered out a lot of the stuff that you didn't even know you didn't want to filter out. And I think in the same way with unstructured data, what we're looking at is now we have these sort of very big opportunities to see everything. But when you have so much to see, you not only have the filter that you're naturally uh, attached to, which is just as you get older, you filter things through a certain lens, but also you just have so much data, you're starting to make conscious choices. Mm. And those choices are based on huge bias, right? Like, and the, if you think of all the amount of training and going back to your automotive executive or your automotive marketing executive, who's done it the same way for years and years, I mean, 
even if they wanted to, even if you put that brand new piece of music right in front of them, they wouldn't even really see it. Mm. You know, because this has a big implication for decision making sure. within organisations, obviously, because you know, as uh, senior people are often have more experience, mm-hmm. they're therefore more likely to filter. They're more likely to rely on their biases mm-hmm. of the way they've always done things, even if they tell themselves they're not. Exactly. <laughs> And I can imagine, um, you know, the work that happens here at Sparks and Honey generates millions of pieces of data, Doesn't structured mean. and unstructured. But you've been involved in a project to actually help pull this together into a platform that allows people to have access to it. Absolutely. You? Well, if you look at all the data in the universe, it's, it's everything from social media data to academic papers to news articles. There's so much of it that we've always sort of been under the, we at Sparks and Honey have always been under the impression that if only somebody could sort of put it all in one place and then start to understand it, then maybe we could better understand culture as a whole. Mm -hmm. And the way to do that isn't just to sort of take the data all over the place, but as you've sort of indicated, to really put it in a structured, meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And we do that with something called the elements of culture. So if you take every piece of culture and you sort of tag it, to sort of find some meaning that comes out of it, you end up with a somewhat discrete list of things that you can help you understand what's going on in culture. And to give you an example, uh, one of the things really surprises most people when they hear it is how many people now are buying what we call adult Legos. So what that is, is you go to the Lego store. I don't know if you have any kids, so if you ever make it to the Lego store. Two, two, uh, twin two-year-olds. It's a great age, and also twins are super fun. But (laughs) we'll skip that for now. But um, you go to the Lego store, and there's all the kids stuff, right? But then over on the right side, there's like these $400, you know, make a, a Lego car. It's like this big, right? And so what this is is this idea of people wanting to build this very adult, very expensive thing, but it's a kid's toy. Right. And what is that? What does that represent in culture? Well, how do I look at that idea and then connect it to other similar ideas? Not just model making, which is a good a good parallel, but also, hey, what about the resurgence of Elf? It's a TV show. <laughs> what about the resurgence of some of these you know, old classic yeah. cartoons? All of those come together at Sparks and Honey in this concept called Kidult. Yeah. Kidult is an element of culture where we've looked at sort of these weird and what should be anomalies and we've categorized them. It's interesting though because uh, you know the people I know that are Kidults that buy those Lego sets build them and then they have them there almost as trophies. <laughs> more, than, more than modeling. Yeah, you yeah. know the old days of Revel and Airfix and all mm-hmm. of those plastic models you buy and put together and then the smel- smelly glue. Yeah and you put that together. They're doing the same with uh, Lego. In fact the Lego movie touched on that yes. because the father was the one that wanted to glue it all together so that the kids couldn't actually play with it. Right. Almost the antithesis of why the game, the toy, right. uh, exists in the first place. In other it's words, about exploring uh, creativity. It's true. In other words, what Cadult represents in many ways is a mutation of the initial form. And it's really interesting if you take that idea, and it's a similar idea with the fact of the Lego movie being so popular with adults in the first place. Mm-hmm. Right? In all of these cases, you have an idea that you had during childhood, then it gets mutated over time. And now you have this idea as an adult. That's what Cadult is about. So the question is, how is a marketing team, whether you're at Ford or you're at Pepsi, do I take this understanding and sort of translate that forward into how I'm going to market to people who might have similar aspirations? 
So just to make it clear for me, this sure. uh, platform, it's, uh, what's the, it called? Uh, it's called Q Insight right now, but we're right. working with lawyers to get a better name. <laughs> okay. So that's a place where not only can you access mm -hmm. in an accessible form the uh, these trends, sure. but also to be able to, I imagine, start looking at where that's impacting across categories Absolutely. and be able to potentially even look at what's the impact that it could have on your business. Absolutely. In fact, um, uh, we were talking earlier before we started recording about the line between machine learning and AI. So let's talk about that through the lens of this product, which is to say the product, as you indicated, can give you all of those uh, elements of culture and all the signals that underlie them. That's really a machine learning play, mm. right? Just to have millions of signals, just to give you an idea. This month, we, up, we uh, ingested two million signals. That's tweets, that's Reddit threads, that's YouTube videos, right? They all come into the system, then we normalize them, right? And that goes, brings us into the structured data idea, right? So we normalize them as in we say, okay, here's an article that involves adults playing Legos, therefore it's adult. It's been normalized, it's been put in the yeah. system, right? So now we have millions so of- So that's a framework. Right, that's a framework and that's been normalizing and saying, that's a machine learning idea, right? Now, what the next step is, okay, now that I know what each of these things are, let's start slicing and dicing it. Okay, what about what's happening in Ohio? How is that different than what's happening in Shanghai, mm. right? So that's this idea of taking this normal, normalized data and then categorizing it. All of that is machine learning. And applying right? a cultural context. Of course, and attaching it to what's potentially a sales context as well because we connect to your DMP uh, so that we can actually look at the demographics of the people who are looking at these particular things, right? So those are all machine learning plays. Mm. What makes it AI, what takes you to the next level is to analyze sort of predicting things like future state. So for example, if I am a woman who, this is a very standard marketing example, is that first time you buy uh, diapers, mm -hmm. right? It's a pivot. And so when we look at, for example, the failure of the beauty industry right now to sell makeup, we saw a 15, 20% dip in makeup sales in the last few years. Why? Because millennial moms are what? They're having babies and they're thinking about, so now we have to realize AI allows us to take a current state mm -hmm. of culture and then predict the future state to take all of that input and then build models against what's going to be happening in six months, in a year, two years. Okay, so the ad tech martech area is alive with uh, everyone saying, oh, AI this and uh, AI that. And, and when you actually look at it, most of it's machine learning, pattern recognition. It's not, it's not I, I AI. I mean, my concern is that artificial intelligence has become the latest thing to a stick, like, you know, putting on a <laughs> organic onto a juice container. Are you, are you, you accusing me of blockchaining? <laughs> well, <laughs> it, it's one of my concerns. It's because, a concern. Because uh, I think that we need to be very clear. Sure. Because the potential of each is actually quite different, as you've just said. You yeah. know, the ability to be able to take huge amounts of data, mm -hmm. categorize it, actually see identify patterns, mm -hmm. you know, and, and then be able to extrapolate that pattern forward and call it a prediction <laughs> is not necessarily AI, is it? Well, I think the question is how you do it, yeah. right? So machine learning would say that I would just assume that patterns from the past would be grouped and then they'd follow into the future. Even in certain circumstances. Exactly. You know, it takes, could take hundreds of different uh, parameters yeah. and, and look at how they influence that and, and would assume that they are the same going forward. That's machine learning. Yeah. AI is deciding what groups they are. AI is sort of making predictions, testing them against itself, and then trying to find other variables that might give you a more clear prediction. 
Let's give you an idea. Remember the fidget spinners? Yep. I know. I don't know how much I'm dating myself here, but fidget spinners and snap bracelets are a really good story to tell when it comes to prediction, right? Because the length of trends has shrunk dramatically. Mm. Right. Machine learning theoretically would assume a linear curve. What it would do is it would take models against the sales data for snap bracelets and the sales data against uh, fidget spinners and theoretically could extrapolate some sort of pattern for the next big, if quick thing. Right. Mm -hmm. What AI would do is it would look at that. Then it would say that's not enough data. And it would sort of try to compare it to other similar things from Beanie Babies all the way to the way that uh, Neopets worked yeah. out, right? And it would use that information in a long-term way to really actually try to get more data. Theoretically, I would say the difference between machine learning and AI is that with machine learning, the computer is never going to stop and ask you for more data. Whereas with AI, at some point, the AI is going to say, okay, but do you have marketing data for China? Yeah. And I think that's so, where the so, space is. So it has uh, almost like some awareness. Yes. <laughs> and I use the term very loosely. Of course, we're not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awareness of the fact that there is not enough For sure. information to be able to project forward with yeah. any sort of accuracy. In fact, maybe it's the first technology that will whine at us. <laughs> <laughs> give me more. Give me more. more. It's, it's not enough, sir. It's not enough. But I think, I think the other thing that makes AI interesting is it's going to have a POV. I think that one of the things that we really, when we talk about what consciousness really is, right, in a way it's about having a point of view. And right now, AI, there's very few, even though there's some stuff happening with DARPA, but there's very few things that actually have a point of view that might be different from what was programmed in. And I think what's going to be interesting is when we start defining AI, not only as, oh, was it able to do this, to achieve this task, but how did Jared's AI differ from Darren's AI? Mm -hmm. How did their point of views change the way that they extrapolated this data? Because with AI, ironically, we're moving further away from a single source of truth. Mm. And in fact, what we're moving to is a truth based on sources. Now, I know it's a little outdated, but you know that <laughs> hierarchy of uh, information? So you go uh, data, information, mm -hmm. um, insight, <laughs> knowledge, and wisdom. Right. This is actually working across all those, isn't yes. it? And it's interesting because wisdom, in a way, is at multiple stages, which is different from our current model, right? Because that model is based on the way we teach, and it's based on the way we think. Or right? a linear model rather than a network model. Exactly. Yeah. And what happens is that assumes that you have one brain. Yeah. One of the things that I think a lot of thinkers have failed to understand about AI is that it's not one brain. And when you have multiple POVs and multiple AI studios, what you're actually dealing with is almost... Um, it's much more equivalent to the internet or some way of human beings interacting with each other and coming up with an answer. And that means it's very likely that AI is going to very consciously give you multiple answers. So what do you say to the people, because I belong to the Ethics Centre. Yes, sir. And this, this uh, <laughs> comes up as a constant discussion around the ethics and mm -hmm. how can ethics be built into AI. Which I still think is a should it be, but I'll take that. So one of the things, and I think Asimov makes this point pretty quickly. So you think it should be built in? Well, no, I said should it be. As my point no, was you have to ask right, the question, yeah. Yeah. Your Honor, I didn't kill my wife, Your Honor, I'm not married, right? Like mm -hmm. you have to decide whether or not it's actually a good question to even ask, mm -hmm. right? And I think the first, I think the challenge there, and going back to that Asimov reference, is essentially, you know, if we have a moral sense, can that moral sense not be perverted? Right. And a, sort of the standard sci-fi trope of the robot who, uh, in order to save humanity, enslaves humanity. Yeah. Right. And what that means is, and I think, you know, it's a question of empowering our AI, of course. But I think the real question is, 
is it possible that we maybe distangle this idea of morality and instead start thinking about outcome mm-hmm. and ask ourselves, okay, I don't want to give my AI a sense of morality because it could, could turn bad, but I do want to give my AI a lot of uh, barriers to sort of going past something without a certain uh, sort of amount of control. Now, I'm not saying that's the final uh, endpoint, but I do think that we're going to have to uh, grapple with the fact that morality as a programming concept is something that can easily be twisted, mm-hmm. and that unlike a human, an AI isn't going to have one morality. Yeah. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see how that, uh, that ends up. That being said, I think there's a lot of great answers out there. Well, it certainly um, provides a terrific tool, because going back to our earlier conversation, yeah. we've got uh, major decision makers that have got to perhaps a point in life where they're filtering <laughs> all of the information coming to them. Sure. Or it's coming through particular filters that have a, an agenda. Right. Um, and they're basing their decisions on this. Right. Wouldn't this be a the sort of future of decision making within business, government, organisations? Mm-hmm. Do you see an opportunity to have AIs, multiple thoughts and processes of huge amounts of data informing those decisions very quickly? I think it's a very exciting place to be. I think that's where Sparks and Honey is actually building our, out our idea of what we call the AI CEO or the AI CMO. And the idea is not necessarily that we're replacing that role, but that we're creating a wall of information for that person to make meaningful decisions based on those edge cases, as well as the central cases. In other words, if you're in automotive, we'll give you what you expect in automotive. We're also gonna challenge you at those edge cases in a way that's both productive, in other words, not so wild, it's meaningless, but also in a way that hopefully will steer you in a different direction. And that's where ethics comes in, isn't it? Because what if I'm steering you in the wrong direction? A perfect example is one of the things we're gonna see with the rise of mega cities right, like cities with just huge, ginormous populations, very dense spaces, is this new question of whether or not we even care about the environment outside. Because right now, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, look, we're, we're doing a better job recycling, right? You heard in our briefing, yeah. oh, look, we've divided our trash really nicely. But at the scale of a billion people in the city, it's immaterial how much you can sort that. Right. It's much more going to be about dramatically rethinking the way we do things. Can AI really be built in an ethical enough way that it could make that kind of make that a meaningful factor in its decision making? Mm. Right. And if it can, would we ever listen to it? It's a very big, a very different question. Because the um, the ethics center has built a online uh, <laughs> portal sure. that takes you through a series of thought exercises. Well, where can I reach that? To um, to actually help you make ethical decisions. Yeah. Now it's interesting because as a group, there was a conversation, and we're talking about CEOs of sure. major organisations were there, and they were, they. Just the simple definition of ethics. You know, people are saying it's making the tough decisions and it's doing the right thing, you know, sure. which is a moral rather than ethical. It's a fair right? point. So the the uh, the definition that was provided, and I've now in, adopted this as my uh, working <laughs> definition of ethics, is doing the least amount of harm to the least number of people. Interesting. So. It's based on the premise that every decision you make mm-hmm. has potential for harm. It's an interesting idea. So from that direction, then, how do I then consider, and that's what this uh, decision-making exercise takes you through, is 
making sure that it frames your decision, taking into consideration all stakeholders, mm. all you know the environment and, and every aspect sure. that you should consider in making that decision. It seems to me that this is the type of thing that you could build into an AI. Absolutely. From the basis of here's the you know if every every recommendation comes with a and here's the harm attached. Here's the caveat. To it. Yeah. So um, just to take an example from insurance. So if you're familiar with actuarials and the way mm-hmm. that insurance works, one of the key ways... I love actuarials. Thank you. I should, it's, it's a fun way to spend your afternoon. Yeah. Um, is this idea that insurance is based not just on potential harm, but also on uh, utility. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if I have an insurance policy, um, and a good example is people are now talking about insuring drones, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how, how do I insure whether or not the drone? Well, the first question is, does the drone have a purpose? Does it have a value in the first place? Because if you think about it, even if there's a one, one trillionth chance that that drone might hurt a, a little hair on my head, even if there's that, if there's no utility to it, yeah. then there's no point in having the drone and there's no insurance. So that's a great example because I was sitting in Zurich only (laughs) two months ago and this drone was flying. We were sitting on a rooftop garden and this drone was flying overhead and I said, oh, those damn drones. (laughs) And uh, I said, oh, I'd love to shoot it out of the sky. And my friend who lives in Zurich said, oh, that's the one that the hospital uses to send blood samples (laughs) to the university because it's the fastest way of getting across town. And I felt so bad (laughs) because, you know, I was thinking drones, you know, really, but there you go, utility. Utility is it. And so Mm. to go back to the morality question or the ethics question. If I'd shot it out of the sky, I'd feel mortified. You would have indeed. (laughs) But in other words, it's, you know, there is potential harm in a drone. And so if you ran that equation as doing the least harm, but you did not do the math against the the possible utility of that harm, Mm. then you're missing the point, right? Mm. So in other words, we have in a way to find a, we have to teach AI to understand utility as a concept and then understand the space between it, right? Because I think any normal human being, if you said, if I give you a trillion, trillion dollars to hurt this other person, hopefully they would say no, though let's not say that they would. (laughs) But it's the idea that we understand that there's utility and that that utility can only be balanced in a very sort of oblique way against what we consider to be harm, Mm. right? And so in the same way, that utility, that drone uh, probably was um, probably not releasing hydrocarbons, but it certainly required energy, and yeah. it did pretend uh, it did pretend some flavor of threat. You know, if it fell down by accident or of hit course. somebody, of course. But the utility was pretty obvious, mm. right? What happens when it's not? How do we train AI in that space? <laughs> that's true. You know, but that's that isn't that part of uh, you know, AI has the ability to constantly learn, exactly. draw on the past to uh, <laughs> consider the present yeah. and project into the future. Well, hopefully so, but. Going, you know, going to that website and sort of hitting the, you know, should I do this or should I do that? How do you measure that with utility? What is the value of utility? Especially because one of the challenges that I think it's very hard to cognitively accept, and that's where machine learning really comes in, is what happens when it's multivariate, Mm -hmm. right? Because if the utility is over here, say, in say health, but the challenge or the um, the detriment is say in money, well, those are incomparable, Mm -hmm. right? It's immaterial how much it costs if I can save a life. (laughs) <laughs> I, I do have to clarify the. Yes, uh, it's not a decision tree, oh, okay. so it doesn't go yes or no. It actually sets up a series of conversations. Wonderful. So that people can consider holistic, oh, well, as close to holistically as so possible. So you built Jiminy Cricket. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I love it. So, what types of uh, things w- will be required to move from, say, uh, Q 
insights yeah. yep, to being able to get the CEO of the, the AI CMO. CMO. Yeah. I love it. Uh, well, I think that in a way it's a valuable step, right? But I think the real story for an AI CMO is about connecting the entirety of your organization to what you're doing. So we have one of our advisors is a woman named Indra Nori. She's an amazing woman. She used to be the CEO of PepsiCo. Absolutely. And one of the stories she tells, which I think is really powerful, is that she was shocked when she realized that she had no control as a CEO of her own schedule. She literally had, she, she described this as two years in advance plans for meetings and outings and even breaks <laughs> were scheduled for years in advance because the organization is such a complex entity that you have to not only sort of plan around a million people's schedules, but you also have to actually think through the consequences of meeting a person for a certain amount of time, right? And so if you imagine the complexity of that organism, but then you put AI and machine learning to work at getting into each piece of it, then you have some real value. Mm. Uh, the first thing is to be is to digitally transform these organizations in a way that every important piece of uh, data, every important variable, is sort of met with AI. That's the first step. So right now, Sparks and Honey is dealing with outside culture. That's easy because it manifests itself. One right? of the problems for these big organizations yes. is that they're still built on a traditional organizational structure that commits. Mm. You know. Back with the Romans, exactly. the Roman legions were the first ones to organize <laughs> right, into silos yeah. uh, or into uh, battalions right. was the, oh. the army version. Right. So, you know, how, do, how can you then understand this, the limitations of that <laughs> sure. silo when you're starting to connect them uh, with technology? That's a great question. I mean, it's really about evolution, right? When you think about how a small company evolves to grow bigger, that's where those silos come from. I'll, I'll never forget the first time I heard myself say, oh, we should have a form for that. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, you're, you want to make this decision? You want to purchase this thing? I realized 10 people have goofed it up. I guess we need a form for that. It's when you hear yourself saying TPS reports that you suddenly say, oh, organizations naturally evolve to become more complex because there's a bunch of safeguards, right? And so what you need to do to de-silo is you need to, embed, you need to invest in trust. Mm-hmm. You need to literally put in resources that help you make choices that do, you don't fear the possibility of somebody breaking something. Yeah. And then after you've invested in that trust, you need to de-evolve all of those systems that represented a lack of trust. Think of HP. Do you know that story about Hewlett uh, unlocking the closet doors for the technology? Um, that's the idea, that you move away from those silos. Yeah. It's much easier, though, to build from scratch than it is to uh, devolve, isn't it? Of course it is. That's why startups have it so easy until they don't. <laughs> but then we see a lot of major, you know, what started as startups end up with that traditional structure. So this is what you're saying about yeah. people just naturally evolve into this mm-hmm. without actually thinking about yeah. the way of doing it. Yeah. Absolutely, and that's where the AI CMO will have an advantage because the AI might be able to take some of the stress away from some of those difficult choices. And also for the CEO. Yeah. I can imagine that, you know, to go into (laughs) PepsiCo and actually have an AI that's organizing Mm -hmm. or at least collecting the data from the organization. And helping you make those choices. Sorting it and giving options. It's the future, sir. So it actually provides efficiency. That's the idea. <laughs> uh, and allows people to get older and wiser uh, to take on decision making where their biases and filters won't be as prevalent as that perhaps they are now. And learn Chinese at the same time. <laughs> well, 
that would be an absolute miracle. Look, um, this has been a terrific conversation. Thank it's you, pleasure, Jared. Sir. It's a real pleasure. Thank you so much for helping me. Once again, it's every time you talk to somebody new, you have an opportunity to rethink these sort of big ideas from their perspective. I do have one last question, and, yes, and that is, do you think we'll ever have an AI president? Thank you.